This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agopymatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. This week's guest is Fotini Economopoulos. If you're wondering why that sounds familiar, it's because she was our guest on episode two, where we talk about negotiating. And of course, we're going to talk more about negotiating today. But a little bit about Fotini, if you haven't listened to episode two, nicknamed the negotiators a child, Fotini has been honing her skills her entire life. And now she has a book coming out on April 20th, Say Less, Get More, published by HarperCollins. Check out the link in the episode notes to pre-order this incredible book. I love it. Hi, Fotini. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. Thank you for having me back, my friend. I was just telling you before we started recording, like, you know, I have a few friends who have written books and, you know, with exceptions, usually when my friends like write books, especially if like they're friends where I follow everything, I've read every other article they've written. I usually just skim through the book because I feel like I know a lot of the information. And so when you sent me your book, I was like, I'll just skim this to prepare. No, motherfucker. I read the whole thing. <laughs> it was, that it makes me so happy. Like, you know why? Because you, you know what's amazing about your book? It's like post me too. So you start to really talk about like the gender difference between negotiating. The wonderful thing is I'm glad that you picked up on something. I want to make it clear to everybody that this is not a book for women. The point of bringing that stuff up and understanding that negotiations do happen differently for women and for other groups who are not the dominant group is that it's not a one size fits all. It's that people are treated differently. And so my hope for this book is that it's the difference between, I use the analogy of the on-ramp and the stairs. The majority can use the stairs and it works great for them, but everybody can use the on-ramp. So I want everybody to feel like they can get something out of this book as opposed to some of the stuff that I've read in the past. Not all, but some of the stuff that I've read in the past, I read them and I go, yeah, 80% of that would work for me. 20%, I'd be laughed out of the room if I did some of those things, or that doesn't work in my world. And I'm sharing with you in the book, some of the stuff that's happened from my personal experience, as well as studies that I've seen on the subject. I think that was like a big takeaway for me. In fact, I'd like to read part. I think this is, here we go. Do you mind if, can I read from your book? Go for it. Oh, this is so good. After a rigorous boot camp of training, I was finally ready to run my own workshop. I was all alone in a Marriott hotel in the Midwest wearing a severe business formal uniform. In my case, a black suit with my hair tied back in a quote, dragon lady bun. In an attempt to look as polished and authoritative as I could, given that I was 20 to 30 years younger than my clients, I walked up to the seven men and one woman and said my first words, are you the negotiator? to which everyone who was of course there to attend the negotiated training was expecting answering the affirmative. When they did, I mimicked my peers with my next line, which was, we'll see. I want you to know that at this moment, I kind of got shocked that you did that, but we'll just keep going. Um, (laughs) Like my eyes really widened. Anyway, you should know that every time I watched my tall white male peers say this, the unanimous response from the clients was nothing. 
perhaps a look of puzzlement or surprise with an undertone of this is going to be interesting, but that was it. People were put off just because just enough to be intrigued, but not enough to rebel. On my first time out, I, the five foot five ethnic looking young woman, got a very different response. As the clients and I were walking down the hall to our meeting, one gentleman shouted to his colleagues, did that fucking bitch just say, we'll see. True story. Um, in that moment, I'm going to keep reading because it's, this is really good. I want to, in that moment, I realized we were having our first negotiation of the week. My trainers would either follow me to the meeting room and compliantly continue with the program or begin a rebellion that would escalate after every instruction. I had no clue what to expect. I had never experienced this in my training. No one had prepared me for this kind of pushback. And, you know, I, so after reading that bit, I I started to think about, I think that's why I really loved, I loved reading your book. It kept taking me back to my own real life examples where I became more aware of not only my own gender, but like perception. So, you know, you're five foot five, you said, right? Yep. I'm, I'm nearly six feet. I tower over people. And, and sometimes I, I get really nervous with the hard exterior that like, I mean, listen, I know what my, like I, I, one of my, I'm, I'm currently mentoring a new matchmaker in the industry. And she told someone, Oh, you know, Maria is mentoring me. Matchmaker Maria is mentoring me. And that matchmaker, who I don't really know that well, but she replied to her. Oh yeah. I heard she's a bitch. Wow. Let me know how it goes. She like said that to me, like, kind of like, Oh, you have a reputation. And I was like, what's the reputation that I'm a bitch. And she's like, yeah, this is what she said. And I was like, yeah, a lot of people who have never spoken to me one-on-one have that impression because I do not forget the ask a matchmaker. Most of people don't follow me on social media, but it's because like, if I go to a conference, I do hold people to account. You know, I am, I am one of those people when you present, I want to like, like, if you say, Oh, people are saying this, I'll, I'll be like, do you have a peer reviewed study? Like I need to know who are these people? You know, I was at a conference a year and a half ago. This is literally like a month before lockdown. And this guy was promoting his relationship coaching services. And I asked him what certifications he holds to be a relationship coach, because I'm not a relationship coach. I'm a date. I, I have dating coach and I have a, I have a few certifications, but I'm nowhere near to be, you know, like I have colleagues who have masters in family and social work and all that stuff. And he said, well, anyone could be, you know, um, a family therapist. And I'm like, no, not anyone. Like you just use the word therapist that, you know, do people know that you're not certified anything? They've just created a program that people can follow. Cause then you could just be like, you know, a couple's coach, but they're, you know, these words have meaning. And I just remember the way he looked at me and I'm not trying to call him out in front of people, but you're also selling your services to a group of dating professionals. And I want to know how, I'm, if I were to use your services, how am I selling you exactly to my group? Yeah. So Ah, anyway, that's just, uh, I, I would say what you are is assertive. That is the definition of assertive. You are raising things to people's attention because you're not just going to be a passive consumer without challenging something. And for the same reason that I'm going to, if someone's going to give me stuff and give me a bunch of statistics, I'm going to go, where's that from? Because I know from my own personal experience and having worked in and done some work in academia and having studied stuff in the past that Statistics can be flipped one way or the other. We know yeah. now that given, you know, the whole fake news and mainstream media and all of that, that nonsense that's going on, that credibility matters. 
And so we are assertive by asking those questions. However, as women, we are often labeled as aggressive. And that's where the word bitch comes from. And I would guarantee you, based on our own personal experience, as well as plenty of studies that cite similar things, that if a white male were to have asked that question, it would have been like, oh, okay, I'm due to give this advice to my audience. But because it came out of your mouth, it is oh, she's such a bitch for putting me on the spot, for making me accountable, for making me tell you what you are due to tell me in the first place. I did a workshop a few weeks ago for a bunch of women in medicine. And I was citing all of these statistics in my keynote. I, I love data and I use it to help people you know, figure out what to do. And in the chat, it was, uh, the questions were, can you cite the, the studies that you're talking about? Because I said 7% of this and whatever. And I'm like, kudos to you for asking the question. You're going to have to go to the book because I don't have footnotes in front of me at the moment because I said a 2013 Harvard study or a 2011 study on such and such. But I, and in my book, I'm very careful to make sure I give everybody exactly the sources that I get this stuff from because right. I need to be credible in what I do. I have been exposed to lots of trainers and speakers and other folks who call themselves experts who pull stuff out of their butts. And that is not who I want to be. I never are saying, yeah, people are saying, well, what people, my people, your people, I can make up people, but we are people, you and I value science. We value credibility. And by raising attention and putting a spotlight on it, we should not be called aggressive. And we certainly shouldn't be labeled as bitchy for expecting a minimum level of credibility from somebody. And it, it irks me to no end. You know, in my case, it's also just like a minimum level of professionalism. Exactly. You're yeah. asking me to invest in you and to use my credibility to right. to shine it on you. Well, that's going to damage me. So I'm sure as hell going to do my due diligence. Why wouldn't I in that right. case? I don't, when I started reading your book, there were moments where I would wander into thinking about my own body type. You know, I mentioned before, you know, I'm really tall. I'm, I'm a big girl, <laughs> a big woman even though it seems like a lot of you noticed uh, some weight loss in a recent Instagram post. (laughs) Yes. Hello. You look amazing. And I'm saying this not as somebody who I don't praise people based on aesthetics. That's not about it. I just know how you value everything in your life and what a hard, you know, last little while that you've had. And I know that if it was me, I'd be hitting the Oreos hard. It's really hard work. um, To see you come out glowing. Uh, coming out of COVID where the rest of us are like packing on the COVID I'm having a glow up. I'm having a glow up. <laughs> I'm love my glow up. Anyway, so um, I was, but I was still, I'm still very much a tall, voluptuous woman. And I started to wonder about my body type and that like, do people negotiate harder with me or do, are people more competitive with me because of my body type? And what I mean by that is I think socially we look at really strong people physically, big people, yeah. right? You look at the Hulk and you figure- Oh, he can take it. And yes, he can probably take the physical hitting by Iron Man, right? Yeah. But does that also mean that he could emotionally take the hard hits too? And so if I were, you know, five feet tall and frail, would that other matchmaker have called me a bitch or would she have called me feisty? Yeah. Because those two words mean very different things in when in the context of assertiveness. Now, there used to be a time where that really bothered me where people would say, oh, Marie is a bitch. Like all the time, it used to bother me. But then I, like I say to all of our group coaching program women, we always say, you know, there's no such thing as an intimidating woman. There's only intimidated people. And I was like, yeah, okay. I'm not for everyone. 
if you want the no nonsense advice, if you want, you know, authentic mentorship or whatever, if you want me to bring you to this level, then I'm going to give you what I know what to do. And I'm not going to fluff you. And that's, you know, if you think that's intimidating, because there are people like, remember that whole emoji debacle, like two months ago, somebody (laughs) asked me about like, should they get an abortion or something? like I don't even remember. And I was like, you should, I don't even know. I said, that sucks. Something like that. And everyone's like, you should have used an emoji. And I'm like, what? I don't like, this is the issue with communication, right? So it is so easy to be misinterpreted. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is the physicality element. So what might be perceived one way with me could be completely, completely different with you. I used to have a boss that was six foot four, something like that. Mm-hmm. So when I lean forward as a five foot five woman, people go, Oh, she's interested. She's leaning in because she's interested. When someone that size leans forward, they go, Oh, good. He's trying to scare me. He's trying to get into my personal space. There's a perception right. management thing. So you need to factor that in no matter who you are, whether you're five foot five or five foot 11 or whatever the case may be, it's thinking about from their perspective, how do they view it? Because they might see you as a taller person and go, okay, she's ready for battle. Therefore I'm going to get more aggressive. Other times it can be some, they see someone small and frail and go, great, she's weak and I can get more aggressive. It just depends on the individual and it depends on that moment in time. When it comes to how we communicate on text messaging and all that kind of stuff. And I've got lots of examples in the book on that as well. When you're missing the element of the sound of your voice and the look of your face, there's a reason why we have a million and one emojis, right? And you've had the uh, you've had the debate even on your social medias about what a peach means. A peach could mean something to one person versus to another. Uh, It could be a fruit. I'm a millennial. Peach means vagina. And to other people, it might mean a bomb. And to other people, it might be a a fruit. But you don't. It's all dependent on the person with whom you are dealing. And that's, you know, I talk to people all the time about pausing for perspective. Who am I dealing with right now? And when you're speaking in text messages and on social media, it can be perceived a number of different ways. I'm sure if you did a poll in your audience, a bunch of people would say, no, it was fine. And others would go, yeah, you definitely need an emoji there. So we have to be conscious of the messages that we send. And in my world, the stakes can be quite high. So I tell my clients and in the, in the, corporate world, as well as the people that I coach in my audiences, before you hit send, make sure that you are thinking this through from the other person's perspective, who's going to be reading it and what clarifications do you need to make? I once had a boss who thought, LOL, get lots of love. And that made for some very awkward oh conversation for a really long time too. <laughs> um, I want to read another part of your book that made me think as well. The differences in the way men and women are perceived or treated, even when they say the same things may explain why so many more women in my audiences consistently tell me they're afraid to negotiate. It could also explain why in Linda Backcock's 2003 study, she found that only 7% of women surveyed negotiated their salary for their first job after school. Men clocked in at 57%. So it seems that many men are also afraid to negotiate. What's behind all this fear? Why is negotiating so difficult? Let me count the ways. Perceived threats to our well-being, a sense of pride or self-image, fear of rejection, fear or rejection, or that we might not get what we asked for. Belief that negotiation has to be a battle combined with the preference to avoid conflict. Concern that instead of rationality, attempts to negotiate will be trampled by other parties' emotion, and so on and so on. You were like, you know, many things. And again, it just takes me back to this truth to my, you know, my first job out of college, not, not a single person then advised me to negotiate the salary. And I remember saying like, I got an offer for this job, right? It was like, I think it was a $42,000 base with like 
this bonus incentive, right? And I remember when I saw it, it said 42 to 47, the base salary, like what the range was. Yeah. And I know they were hiring people with also like work experience. And here I am straight out of college. And so when I mentioned, oh, I got an offer 42,000, you know, the advice I was given as well, it's your, it's your first job out of college, except the 42. Oh, that when that was actually, I would realize, you know, a year later when I happened to be talking to one of my male colleagues who also same years of work experience, he was being paid 47. And I was like, wait, why was he offered 47? Like, why does he have 47? I have 42. And I, I remember asking him, like, did you negotiate 47? And like, tell me what you did. And he's like, no, they offered 47. And I just got really angry because we were hired the exact same day. We had the exact same job, the exact same, you know, it was myself, him and another person. We were all three of us were hired at the exact same time. But that other person was a woman. I don't know how much she got paid. I've never asked her, but she did have, you know, three years of work experience or something like that before coming to that company. But the guy and I, we had the exact same work experience, exact same job, exact same responsibilities, but he was paying $5,000 more. And I remember just feeling really upset for a long time because, you know, $5,000 might not seem like a lot, but it is a lot. It's also like the principle of it all. Yeah. I mean, the principle is hurtful to say that you are not as worthy as your peer, all because the only, if the only difference in your resumes is basically that he has a male name, don't. That's hurtful, period. That's saying you are less worthy than the person in your peer group. So why wouldn't you take that personally? That's, it's disturbing to me because it's a demonstration that there is clearly still, you know, gender bias in the workplace. And, and it's the reason why so many women avoid the negotiation process because they're worried that, look, if they don't see me as worthy, this is what's happening in, as an inner monologue at a subconscious level. Yeah. If they don't see me as worthy and I ask for more, what's going to happen? And they're worried about that offer getting rescinded. They're worried about being perceived as greedy. That was 100%. You know, I want you to think about it. This was, this offer was given to me two weeks after Bear Stearns melted down in the island of Manhattan, which is where I was about to be employed. Um, I'll, you know, I could see that the economy was about to like, it was, you know, we were about, you know, in September, you know, a few months later, pink slips everywhere, yeah. you know, and I was terrified of negotiating. I was so scared because I knew that, you know, 20 people or 12 people, whatever it was, I remember the waiting room. I remember how busy it was. And I remember there was only three positions. So I was scared. I was going to say like, what I want. I, like I could have said, you know, can you make it a 43.5 or 44,000? It's not to be 47 or whatever. But then what they could say, well, you know, someone else could take it at 42. You know, the guy that gave me the offer, I'll never forget him for the rest of my life. It was like, I, I was terrified of him. I was scared yeah. to like, you know, it seemed like this is the only offer and you're lucky. And, but you know, another guy got the exact same position, different offer. And luckily, and luckily, Fotini, I didn't find this out until like a month after I left. Oh, because you would have lost it when you were, if you found out while you were I, Oh my God. I, I, I've been I would not, position. I would not speak. I would, I would be destroyed. I would be, I don't know. I don't know what I would be. It is, I would be, it is having I'd been be there more damaged. than once. And this is coming from someone who's negotiated everything. Like I negotiated my first job offer, my second salary promotions, all of that kind of stuff. And I still, despite the fact that I made the effort and did it successfully in many cases, 
um, I still found out more than once that I was in a position where my male peer or a different peer who was favored by HR, whatever it is, for whatever reason, because it wasn't always a gender thing, um, ended up getting more than I did. And I was livid. Uh, it's right. very hard to stay motivated when you're in that space. Now I turned that in and channeled it into something else, fortunately, but it is so hard to do. And so that's why it's so important to me to give everyone, and I mean everyone, not just white males, the tools to be able to speak up for themselves and advocate for themselves and do it in a way where you can minimize that risk. Like what if somebody had told you back then, what if you asked a question about, is this what all of the peers in this um, experience level and so on and entry level are getting here. Oh, and that's such a good question. To, How you know, come you're nobody, asking the question. Can you ask that? Is that allowed? Could we, could I ask that question? Legally, there's nothing wrong with it. You just have to think about in that moment, how would they perceive that question? And I would try to make sure I frame a question like, hey, I just want to make sure that this is sustainable. I love using the word sustainable when it comes to job offers, because that's signaling at a subconscious level. I'm trying to find a reason to stay here and make sure I'm not looking one foot out the door to find another job that's going to pay me better later. And I'm signaling to you that I'm trying to be a team player and I'm not trying to cost you money by with this constant turnover thing, because that's something that's important to companies as well. So what can we do to make this as sustainable as possible? How do we make sure that this is the most fair and equitable um, offer that is out there and it's comparable to what others in my peer group are getting. If you ask somebody a how or a what question, like how do we make this work? How do we make this sustainable? How do we make this make sure that it's fair and equitable? Those are the questions that are going to make them have to work with you versus being able to say you're being greedy. If all you're doing is being credible and asking for fair and equitability, then how are, how could they justify in good faith taking away that offer? They're the ones that are going to look idiotic when you're asking a very simple and fair question in that process. And by asking a question versus making a demand, you're being less likely to be labeled as aggressive and bitchy and more likely to be put in that assertive camp. Like good for her for being assertive as opposed to she's so greedy, she wants more. I'm mm -hmm. just asking you for a solution oriented question and therefore that takes some of that the issue out. One thing I do tell everybody when they hear ranges like that, you mentioned 42 to 47. And, I, and this comes up every single time, especially that a woman comes to see me, whether it's in my office hours in the MBA program or an audience or something like that. And they go, but if the range is this, how do I ask for more than that? And usually the question I'll ask somebody is, are you average? And they go, well, no, I, I'm top of my field. That's why I got to the interview process. Like I'm the top of my class or I have loads of experience. I said, okay, well, the range is an average range. If you are not average, add the not average tax. Make sure that you are putting yourself in the appropriate end of that range, which is likely the highest side of it. So it's about saying, look, based on my experience, what I bring to the table, my skills, my whatever else it is that you need to speak to credibly to say why you are justified in being above average, here's what I would expect in your range. How can they shoot you down if you're pointing out all the reasons why you are not average? Why would they give you something less than average? when they're trying to bring in top performers into their world. Is this how you would respond to like, if someone asked, what are your income requirements? Yeah. So the, the question usually is like, what are your salary expectations? And most people are scared shitless of that question, to be quite frank. Uh, most I of the am. people will come to see me. And the reason they're scared is they're going, if I overshoot, I'm going to be perceived as greedy. And if I undershoot, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot because I don't want to 
get myself less than I should be getting in the first place. The answer to minimizing all of that risk is do your homework. Figure out what is going on out there. There are so many resources now. There's PayScale, there's Glassdoor, there's all of those things. There's talk to people in your industry. People are really uncomfortable sharing numbers, sharing prices, sharing what they paid for their house, sharing what they make you know, every single year. You don't have to ask them that. You could ask a question and say, based on my experience and based on what I'm bringing to the table, what would you expect for someone with my experience level? Then they're not saying to you, here's what I made at that age or that experience. Then they're saying, well, if I were you, I'd be expecting this without divulging anything about them personally. Just the way you frame that question is going to be really valuable. But you have to do that homework in advance. If you don't do that, then you're going into a negotiation blind. And I never, ever, ever advise my clients to go in unprepared for a negotiation. So you've got to come in with your homework done and you have to come in credibly to be able to cite those things. You don't need to tell them specifically what resources. You don't have to say, based on what I saw on Glassdoor, you're going to say, based on what I've seen in the market, based on what the economic conditions are right now, based on what I've seen in this industry and my experience level within it, here's where I would expect to be. And then you come off as credible as opposed to she's just pulling these numbers out of the sky somewhere. You're going, okay, she's, she's informed about this. So I'm not going to try and one up her. I'm gonna, not going to try and pull the wool over her eyes. I'm going to come forth and be as credible as possible with this person as well. So it's about presenting yourself credibility. And you can only do that when you've done the appropriate homework. I obviously as a business owner, I don't ever have that opportunity. I'm, I'm on the other side of it with the, on the hiring side. But um, I do remember when I was um, looking for an apartment, my first apartment in Manhattan, it was right after that meltdown, that economic <laughs> meltdown. I was like, oh, perfect. And um, my first apartment in New York was actually in Brooklyn. But you know, now that I'm moving to Manhattan, it's like, okay. And I remember trying, I was negotiating the rent with my landlord and I, I brought out a PowerPoint. <laughs> and I was like, based on this neighborhood, based on what's happening, here are what 10 other properties are offering. If you don't take my offer today for, to give me two months free and at this price, it's going to stay, um, it's going to stay unrented for at least another month, possibly two months. And you're going to lose this much rent. Like I had like a whole Excel sheet, PowerPoint, bar graph, like everything. And he rented me the apartment at exactly what I asked for. Because how can you argue with that? You came so well prepared, you couldn't poke any holes in it. Right. And the important thing is, I, th I think what people need to hear is you did that in advance of saying, oh, yeah. here's what I'm willing to pay. Right. You set the stage with your credibility and go, here's an airtight reason why I've got this lined up. Now, here's what I need you to do for me. And I mentioned this now because obviously within two years that, you know, it was no longer a renter's market. And but now it is again, it's a renter's market again in New York. If you're not renegotiating, you are missing the boat big time. It's not just in New York. I see it in Toronto where I live. I see it in other cities as well. People are leaving large cities because of COVID and going, okay, I can take my cost of living much lower. And since I'm working remotely, I can go anywhere. It is now an opportunity for everybody to do this. So I hope that people are listening. And to go back to a comment you made about you're in, the, you're in the business owner position, so you don't get that. You do. You also have this position. You have the ability to go based on what I'm seeing for people with this experience level and what we can afford here being a smaller business, this is what we are prepared to offer. This is what we can do for you right now. Again, right. you just need to come out of the gate credible before you actually put your proposal on the table. So Potini, you have a, at some point in the book, you have this distinction between collaborative negotiating and competitive negotiating. Can you tell me more about that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I talk about a spectrum. So there's, it's not just, there's not just one type of negotiation out there. There are many different types. And so the more okay. collaborative you are, the more it means that you have some kind of relationship. There's more long-term consequences. There's more creativity and complexity involved in it. It's not just about cash. The second you start talking about cash and only cash, people will start to get a little bit more cagey about information. They're not going to want to share anything. They're not going to go, here's how much I actually have in my pocket. Feel free to take advantage of me. That's just not what people do. And when you're talking about the most competitive ones, there's no real relationship to speak of or one that matters. And so you could be, you, you may not have to worry about damaging relationships. For example, if you're buying souvenirs on a beach in Mexico from some vendor who's walking down the street, you're not worried about whether he likes you enough to go for a beer later. You're just doing this one transaction, one and done. It's super short, it's super quick, and it's just about an exchange of cash. And in those instances, you're also going to find that the extremes of where you start and where you finish are much greater. So it wouldn't be unusual for them to come at you asking you for $20 for something and you starting at two and you finding something in the, in the middle, let's say at 10, and you're finishing there. So that's not unusual. When you're starting to do salary negotiations, though, I find that most of them, not all, there's exceptions, and I talk about why and how that happens in the book, but most salary negotiations are kind of in the middle of the spectrum where you're straddling the competitive and the collaborative side. And the reason is you're not, it's not just a one and done thing. You have to deal with these people over and over again. So you're not going to be banging your fists on the table and being cold and arrogant the way you might if you're buying a, a used car at a dealership where you're never going to see that person again. You're not going right. to be boisterous and aggressive and get away with that without consequences when you're dealing with a job offer negotiation. And yes, price is still going to be, the salary is still going to be a very important piece, but you're going to talk about sick days. You're going to talk about flex time. You're going to talk about vacation days. You're going to talk about healthcare. You're going to talk about all of these other things that are going to actually increase your well-being, your, your money in your pocket, your stress levels, and all of those things more than just cash. So the more complex it gets, the more collaborative you get the more long-term consequences there are and so on. So too often people make the assumption, oh, the word negotiation comes up. I'm going to get all aggressive. I'm going to treat it like a boxing match and it's going to be a competition and it's win-lose. Or I get other people who are like, oh, negotiation, it's all win-win. And then that's not the case either. Some of them are win-wins and some of them are win-lose and some of them are everything in between. It's about looking at every single negotiation individually and going, what type of negotiation is this? Is this? And what do I think is appropriate based on these circumstances right now that I have in front of me? I love that. So in your book, Say Less, Get More, you talk about choreographing satisfaction. Tell me more about that. People value things that are hard to obtain. That's the reality of what we deal with. We love some element of hard to get. When you are thinking about negotiation, I often ask my audiences, how do you want the other party to feel? And some people will say, I want them to feel like I beat them up and I got the best possible deal. And others will say, I want them to feel like they won and that we can hold hands and sing kumbaya. And the reality is where you need them to feel is satisfied at the end of a negotiation. Because if they're dissatisfied, then the whole thing could fall apart, whether it's when they're walking back to their car or the cooling off period in a major you know, corporate deal or something like that. And one of the best examples I can give that is many years ago, I used to work for um, manufacturing companies and my job was to go in and negotiate with Walmart. So I'd go and talk to the Walmart buyers and the way the building, Walmart Canada's building was set up is you'd walk out and as you walked out in, into the parking lot, 
you would see um, all of the people in the cafeteria inside, the people who worked in that corporate office would be looking out to the parking lot and seeing everybody walk back to their cars. And so you'd see people walking out of the building, these, you know, suppliers like me when I worked for L'Oreal, Smuckers or one of those companies, and they'd be like high-fiving each other and like hugging and big smiles on their faces. And if a buyer who just did a deal with them was watching them walk out from the parking lot, how do you think that buyer would be feeling? If they're seeing people high-fiving on the way out, they'd be going, crap, I probably gave them too much. I probably didn't get enough out of that deal. If they're super happy, I should be unhappy. I probably paid too much for this. And so by giving them the satisfaction, it means I'm going to make sure that they feel like they got everything that they could out of me. And so it's the same thing when you're dealing with children, right? I think I give an analogy in the book of, of with my godson and how to get him to clean up all of his toys. And, uh, and, he'll, and I'll say something like, I bet you can't do that uh, in the next five minutes. And he go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can. No way. You just did that yourself in five minutes. I can't believe it. I could have let it just pass and go, yeah, good job. Nice. Moving on. But building up that, that dance of satisfaction, the choreography, oh, yeah. taking those few extra steps to make him feel so good is what's going to compel him to want to do more next time or to make him feel so good. It's now a pattern of behavior that we're hopefully instilling in him. It's those little things. You can let it go and just go, yeah, this is what I needed to get done. But just taking that extra time to go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize you could do it so quickly. Now they're feeling so much more satisfied. They want to do something else because that's a feeling that they're addicted to and they want more of it. To take that back to relationships, it makes me think about when women ask me or men ask me, but it's usually women ask me like, oh, my partner smells, how do I get him to smell better? Or, oh, my partner won't go down on me as often as I'd like, how do I make him go down on me? Or like something like that. And it's like, oh, you, it's positive reinforcement is essentially what we're talking about and just being excited. So you could say stuff like, man, it really turns me on when you put on that cologne. Or, you know, it really turns me on when you come out of the shower and you're sleeping next to me and you smell so good. Or, yeah. you know, I was thinking about how you ate me out, you know, yesterday at work and it's all I could think about. I can't wait for you to do it again. And it's like, you're getting people excited because it's, it's kind of personal to them in the excitement. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, in, in terms of choreographing satisfaction, essentially that's what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you could say, here's what I need in order to be satisfied and they'll go, okay. But if you frame it up in a way that builds up a little bit more, you do this dance, right? It's this dance of, I know it's over the top. I know they might see through it, but we're still both enjoying being on the dance floor together. This is what tends to happen when it's personalized and it's unexpected. According to influence into influence and persuasion studies, that would, that gets you even further ahead. So there's a really interesting study that I think has parallels in all sorts of places in our lives. There was a study that was done when they looked at how to get more tips as a server in a restaurant. So when you think about going back to the pre-COVID days when we could dine freely in restaurants, when you got your receipt at the table and it had a little candy sitting on it, you were likely to give tips that were 3% higher than if you didn't have the candy. Then they tried it and they said, what happens if you do two candies? And when you did two candies, you were likely to give 14% more than if you got no candies. And they went, well, let's look at what if you give a whole bowl full of candies. And that's when the law of diminishing returns came in and you didn't get any more than previously. But they tried it one more way. They went, what if we give one candy? Then I walk away and I go, you know what? You guys were such great guests. Here's another one just for you. 
So two candies again, but this time you get 23% more in tips on average. And it's the way those two candies were delivered versus that 14% example. I feel like this is, there's this steakhouse at the Time Warner building (laughs) that does this, I think with caramels, like they make their own caramels that are so delicious. And, you know, you have one and you're like, oh, I wish you could have another one. The waiter's like, do you want more? I'll get you some more. And of course you're like $50 in tip, you know, on a $100 check. You're like, because it's unexpected and it's personal and I feel so good about it. And it all is, it's one freaking candy, but it was the way he delivered it. He went through the choreography of making you feel special. And as a result, you're giving a lot more. He gave you satisfaction and you gave something more in return. Do you think our, you know, where you and I are both Greek. Do you think our grandparents did this when, you know, you know, there's no way this is a personal example. I'm sure every Greek American kid and any other subculture kid has the same experience where, you know, pretend this is a, pretend this is like a drachma. Cause when we were kids, there were drachmas and you're at your village and your grandmother's like, take it, take it, take the 5,000 drachmas. Like as if she's dealing <laughs> heroin to a seven-year-old and she's like, don't tell your mom that's for ice cream. And then of course, you know, you go to get ice cream and then your grandmother's upset with you for using the money. She goes, no, no, no. Take this money for ice cream. Like, so my sister and I, we would come home with like $80,000, 80,000 drachmas each. <laughs> yeah. I'll um, do, I'll do you one better. My mother used to tell me and my sister when there was like two of something and she'd be like, which one do you want? I saved this one for you. It's my favorite. <laughs> and she'd say the exact same oh, thing to my sister. I use that I on my this son one for you. right now. I, you know, when we cook dinner, Cause he's going through this phase where he kind of wants like fish sticks or chicken nuggets. So now I'll make something and I go, he's like, what's for dinner? And I go, I made your favorite. This is what I say to him every day. I made your favorite. We made pulled pork. And he's like, Oh, that's my favorite. And then like two days later, it's like, what's for dinner? You know, now we're in Lent. I'm like, I, I made lentil soup, your favorite. Oh, it's my favorite lentil soup. <laughs> it's all in the delivery, right? It's the oh, same yeah. reason why when you watch sitcoms, they have laugh tracks in them for a reason. Right. Because if you hear other people laughing, you are more likely to laugh as well. Right. And it's, these are the things of persuasion and influence that are kind of leaching into our subconscious. And, and you found ways to implement it with your kid. I mean, and, actually, and we can find ways to implement it in relationships and our everyday negotiations. And and to just kind of add to that example I just gave, I noticed that it stopped working on my son for a little bit. So now we make, so the pulled pork is his favorite, but like pasolada, which is the national Greek dish, um, <laughs> we'll tell him that that's, that's, that's cat boy's favorite food. It, that's a character from PJ Masks. Yeah. Or um, this is, you know, if we have like soup, that's Elsa's favorite food. Um, it's called, that's called the social smell. Right. Okay. Other people are doing it. Therefore, you should be liking it, too. If your other favorites are, are liking it, then it's something you're going to like as well. So when you, you what you found was you were getting predictable in your it's your favorite. Yeah. And so he's picking up on that. So we can use these things, but we can't abuse them because at a subconscious level, we're going to pick right. up on the fact that these are happening. So you switch to a new tack, which is great. It's just as useful. It's the social smell. It's the same reason why if you say, you know, everyone's going to this restaurant. Now I want to go to this restaurant. It's right. the same way if I say the CEO of this company read my book and loved it, you're going to go, well, I want, I sure as hell want to read that book. Those are the things that we're using as, as subliminal messaging at, at all the time. And it's not just in our formal corporate negotiations, which is obviously what I help a lot of companies do. Interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. Every conversation yeah. is a negotiation. It's an opportunity to get what you want and 
to help the other person get what they want in the process as well. Because if you are having a relationship with somebody, that is the most collaborative of negotiations. And I talk about that in the book as well. That is a partnership. That is a point where you are negotiating. You might say, okay, we'll go where you want to go on vacation this year, or we're going to go see your family this year. And next year, we'll go see my family. And you're having those everyday conversations that are truly negotiations to help both of you get what you want. I love that. I love that. Where can people find you? But also, do you have any book launch events happening that I can send my listeners to? So right now, people can go to my website, fotiniicon.com. And when we have public events, they will be posted there. I, you can also follow me on LinkedIn and on Instagram. And I make a lot of those announcements and I give you know advice and, and some of these nuggets of wisdom there as well. We're working on coming up with a, a public launch event. We have a media launch event coming in a couple of weeks, but I'm trying to come up with a fun way to engage the public in it. So that's TBD at the moment, but I'm hoping okay. to do something fun and special in June for for people who want to engage with the book. So I'll have in the episode notes, I will have um, a link to pre-order your book. I'll have a link to your website and a link to your Instagram and LinkedIn in case anyone wants to connect with Fotini off the podcast. She could also, I have booked her as a speaker at an event. So if you have a corporate event or a girl's event, what men's event, whatever, you can also book her to speak. She is an incredible presenter. And, um, you know, I'm just so proud and happy for your success. I cannot wait for more people to read this book. The book is say less, get more unconventional negotiation techniques to get what you want. It's written by Fotini Economopoulou and it, it comes out on April 20th. You can pre-order the book right now by visiting the episode notes. Fotini, thank you so much for joining us on Ask a Matchmaker again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me back again. I always feel like when I'm listening to your episodes, I want to jump in and start talking with you again. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm in listening mode. I'm not in in talking. And I'm so glad you're here today to do that. And, you know, sometimes we're both on Clubhouse. So sometimes we'll create rooms together, although I have not done that in a while. But but I'm always happy to talk to you. I love talking to you. So it's great. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. I am so grateful to receive your questions each week on Instagram and to provide you answers. And I also am honored that you are listening to this podcast. We are over 40 episodes deep. If you haven't listened to all the episodes, start with episode two, because that was the last episode Fatim was on. But there are so many other great episodes to to listen in on um, where we talk about dating relationships. And like today we talk about things beyond dating and relationships where we talk about interpersonal communication. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to listen to more episodes, you can follow the Ask a Matchmaker podcast and you'll get all of this great dating relationship content dropped into your favorite podcast app each Wednesday. Don't forget to rate and review. Do you have a dating or relationship question? Visit askamatchmaker.com to submit your either a 60 second audio question, a written question. You can also submit a closure letter or a rant letter that we can read on a future episode, probably the next episode. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matchmaker Maria for more dating and relationship tips. Until then, be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.